Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all of the corporate operations that go into making, building, selling, and pricing customer perceived value. I am thrilled today to have Steve Shapiro, who is uh, certainly a decorated speaker, but his real gift to the world is as he calls himself an innovation instigator, which is a title that I love. Um, his latest book, Invisible, uh, Invisible Solutions, 25 Solutions That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems, is about helping organizations think about their problems differently, innovate more effectively. And um, Steve, I couldn't be more proud to uh, have you on today. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And so tell us a little bit more about your journey. I, you used to be um, the global lead with Accenture on their process excellence group. And um, how did you get from process excellence to innovation, which is almost an inverse? Well, you know, what's interesting is the process excellence group was sort of a Trojan horse for, for innovation in many respects. We made innovation the centerpiece. Uh, being a very process-oriented organization and the group that we were doing this for, the process competency was all around process improvement. Uh, what we wanted to do was to get people to think about value. So what creates value, external value, and then how do we innovate around that external value? So even though it was called process excellence, uh, it was really all about innovation. That was our primary focus. Well, that's, that's a huge relief because I have a saying that I tell people and, and uh, feel free to disagree because uh, a lot of strategic consultants disagree or they, they get a little offended when I say any process that makes you good at doing something made you bad at doing other things. And when you're putting a process in place, you better have some insight into what you just made your organization bad at and what you're going to do if that, if that comes up to bite you. Yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting perspective. And in fact, one of the things which I believe is that a lot of times we either improve processes or we automate processes. And unfortunately, the process of automating a process means that we just do something bad faster. Uh, and, and so, look, I, I think processes are a great uh, way to drive value to an organization because it will create uh, a consistent perspective, a consistent language. It gives you repeatability. Uh, but if it's the wrong process, obviously that doesn't create value. And also if it's overly rigid, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a jazz sax player. I haven't played in a while, but I used to be a jazz sax player and improvisation was, is, is a cornerstone of jazz, but improvisation still happens within a structure. There's still some kind of structure, whether it's a 12 bar B flat blues or whatever it might be, there's still a structure. And so, you can call that a process, you can call it whatever you want, but we need to be able to coordinate the activities of people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, when every process makes you good or bad, you know, good at something, bad at other things, um, the best processes are ones that are flexible enough uh, to be able to allow something. 
early in my career, one of my first jobs was at, at a company and the founder of the company had put out um, memos to the entire company. And these were still in the days when they were done in typewriter and mimeograph. But uh, one of them was as an organization, here's what we believe. We put in processes and um, policies when we have to, but we do it reluctantly. And it's everybody's responsibility when you're following one of these guidelines or processes to ask the question, is following this guideline or process moving the business forward or are we mindlessly following it to a dead end or, you know, are we doing something dysfunctional because we're following the process? Uh, what a piece of wisdom. That's great. I love that perspective. I mean, it really what they're doing is saying, think. Yeah. Uh, you know, which, which is unfortunately the antithesis of what a lot of organizations do, which is we ask people to execute as opposed to think, but thinking and questioning to me is so fundamental to the success of an organization. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's it's about it's about the result. It's about like you say, thinking and not about executing. Um, awesome. So your your book, Invisible Solutions: Twenty Five Lenses That Refer to Help Us. Tell us a little bit about that and how you help your clients um, innovate and to think differently. Well, it comes back to what you were just talking about, which is we want people to think. If people are just taking what somebody else says and they're just sort of running with it, it might be the wrong solution. So to me, the premise uh, of finding good solutions is to stop looking for solutions. If we want to find better solutions, we need to stop, think, and change the question. So it's the questions that drive the solutions. And so the 25 lenses in the book help you reframe a problem statement. So if the problem statement is, okay, how can we improve our, our revenues? Well, that's an interesting question, but you're gonna, if you ask your employees, let's say you have 1,000 employees, you're going to probably get 10,000 ideas on how to improve revenues. So that's probably a bad question to ask them. The 25 lenses allow you to take that and put it into a mental kaleidoscope that allows you to twist it and turn it and change the question so that you will actually find questions that will yield better solutions. I love the idea of putting it through a kaleidoscope and looking at it from different angles, uh, different perspectives, because that is, um, I, I've heard that from a bunch of speakers in different ways, but the, the basic idea of look at your problem from different sets of eyes, different problems. Um, I really, in my value work, I, I've, really drive people to look at a lot of problems through the customer's eyes, through customer value. And um, as awesome as that is, it's not the only way to look at a problem, especially um, certain problems. So uh, I love the fact of, of diversity of view and diversity of, of opinions. Yeah, I think, look, any breakthrough comes not from typically experts but by blending an expert in a particular area with somebody from outside that area. So if you're trying to solve a problem for the hospitality industry, if you have a hundred people in the hospitality industry trying to solve the problem, at some point you're gonna have a point of diminishing returns, but adding you know, someone from uh, the retail industry, from the hospital industry, from a you know, manufacturing industry, now all of a sudden you're gonna start finding some better potential solutions. Isn't that interesting? And that, that speaks towards uh, diversity of viewpoints 
And it's, it's kind of that whole idea is the basis of why diverse organizations outperform uh, those who are not. Be yeah. Because, they, because they, ha they have an internal resource, an internal well of different perspectives. I, that's spot on. And I'll, I'll add one caveat to that, which is diverse organizations outperform more homogeneous organizations when, and I think the key thing is when the diversity is appreciated. If you put a bunch of people together who think differently in a room and you ask them to solve a problem, you will end up with a very dysfunctional mess in most cases. But when you point out what each person contributes, why they're in the room, that's when you get exponentially greater results uh, from that level of diversity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, I have in, we're recording this in middle of July, 2020. So the, the world right now is uh, worried about COVID and worried about um, resurgence. You're in Florida, so you're probably right in the middle of um, a lot of worry about this. I believe this is this is my prediction for the future, uh, my amateur futurist standpoint, and that is that the future is going to belong to organizations that are agile, that know how to pivot not once, but pivot constantly, for pivot for a living. Um, I have I have a visions of a ballerina walking around, you know, doing twirling across the stage, because those people pivot for a living, and that's going to the world is going to belong to people who, because change is, which was always constant in 2019 and before, change is going to be bigger, faster, and more disruptive. And so rather than single pivots, single repositioning of our organization, learning what the customer wants and then changing, um, we need to develop organizations that pivot for a living, that organically gather information, assimilate information from lots of different sources through lots of different perspectives and figure out what to do about it from the bottom up, not the top down. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as you said, uh, this has been the case for a long time now. Uh, I do think that of the concept of adaptability is important. And, and to me, I always use the word relevant. So when people ask me, how do I define innovation? I define innovation as relevance. If you aren't relevant in the minds of the consumer, the buyer, the business partners, suppliers, whomever you do business with, if you aren't relevant, then it doesn't matter. Innovation that is novel, that is different for the sake of being different is not innovation. It is just change for the sake of change. And you know, right now, obviously we're going through a lot of change, but change for change sake doesn't necessarily mean it's good. I see a lot taking place right now in response to the pandemic that isn't really innovation, but it's reactionary. It's a knee-jerk reaction to the current situation. And yes, it is a survival technique and a survival tactic that's being used now. But coming back to what you're saying, I think in the long run, companies need to become exceptionally good at understanding what will keep them relevant, what is needed, and how can they continually adapt, evolve, and change to repeatedly and rapidly bring new products, services, and business models to market. Yeah. So as you're working, you're not just a speaker, you're a consultant. You work with, with companies and, and uh, with leadership teams. How do you develop the muscle in your clients for continuing, continually innovating and, and doing that? 
what do you do with your clients when you're when you're trying to get them to become like i say develop that muscle at staying relevant well it, it, it's related to where we started the conversation which was about getting people to think because if you have an organization of doers then basically all the decisions are coming from a small group of people who have a limited amount of information so the key is to get everybody inside the organization to think and the way you get people to think is through questions so leaders often believe that they're the ones that have to have the answers and i think once a leader believes they have the answers that's to me the sign of doom for the organization leaders should not have the answers they should have the questions that unleash the organization to ask better questions and so the way I work with my clients is I use the 25 lenses and a number of my other tools to get people to say, hey, we're working on this project. Pause. What are we really looking to achieve? Are we solving the right problem? Is there a better problem we could solve? Is there a more elegant, simpler, faster solution that we could deliver by changing the question, by changing the perspective? And that to me is really the, the muscle that I build is getting an organization to be a question asking organization. So if you come back to a mantra, which a lot of people subscribe to, which is the don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. I say that's bad advice. Don't bring me solutions. I want better questions. I want more important. I want questions that are actually going to move the needle. I would call them differentiating questions, questions that help the organization truly stand out in a crowded market. And when you get everybody inside of an organization thinking that way and questioning that way and asking those types of questions, then you get an adaptable organization. Boy, I love that, Stephen. I have noticed in my career, um, when I started maybe 30 years ago, it was pretty common to have uh, five roles in your company that touch the customer on a regular basis. There'd be two sales groups and inside and an outside sales. And then you'd have a delivery and a customer service or something like that. Now I have SaaS clients that have 15 silos, 15 roles that touch the customer. And we still manage them the same way. We, we let the people with the sales title sell and the other ones who touch the customer, we say, just stay in your lane don't talk to the customer about needs or outcomes, just do your job and come home. And today, uh, 30 years ago, that made a little bit of sense. But today, now sales is the minority shareholder in the customer interface. We have splintered the interface so much that sales is a minority shareholder. And it's a minority shareholder in minutes. But if you were to wait minutes by trusted minutes, minutes with a trusted counterpart, all of the, every single one of those 13 is probably has at least as much, if not quite a bit more trust than the salespeople. And are telling those 13, stay in your lane, just do your job. Don't talk about customer outcomes, just do your job and come home. Uh, that becomes a bigger and a bigger problem. It's the boiling frog. And I think it's time that we empower everybody who touches the customer and it's even more important in a SaaS organization with as unsticky as the SaaS business model is but i think it's important that we empower people to ask better questions of customers so that we can start asking and having that bigger more rich kaleidoscope internally when we're trying to figure out what we do and how we interact with our customers what do you think yeah, there's a lot of, lot of richness in what you just said. So let me 
point out two things. One is uh, love the perspectives that you just talked about in terms of uh, you know getting people to be thinking you know maybe a little broader than they were uh, and asking questions and asking the customer good questions. And in fact, one of the things that we find in many cases though is the questions we ask our customers lead the witness. They they we have an expected outcome that we're looking for. We have an expected uh, thing that we're looking to sell. And so we subconsciously frame our questions in a way that force our customers to respond in a particular way that doesn't really give us an, any insight because it's only a reflection of what we believe. So we need to become better at asking questions. And whenever possible, we need to become better at observation. We need to be able to remove the customer from the conscious conversation and move it to a much more organic conversation. And it's a, it's a longer topic, but that's the first thing is just how we engage with customers and gather insights from customers needs to shift. The second thing is how we collaborate internally, I think is critically important. And it reminds me of some companies where, uh, when we looked at, for example, product development, product development was always the domain of the, the research and development group. And what ended up happening was, uh, products weren't launched on time, like 15% on-time product launch. When we shifted product development to be three months after product launch, that meant that marketing, sales, product development, legal, uh, manufacturing, distribution, supply chain, all needed to be involved. And just by shifting the outcome to a shared outcome, we went from 15 to 15 to 70% on-time product launch. So this collaboration becomes so important by focusing on the outcomes, we can create an internal environment where we're achieving those results. Man, focusing on outcomes. I love it. It's music to my ears. Um, value to me, my definition of value is um, the perceived or the desirability of the outcomes you per that your customer perceives from buying from you. Customers don't buy your product or service. They buy their own outcomes for their own reasons and how badly they want their outcomes. That's the value. And so it's a, it's a matter of getting them to perceive and to believe in those and you having an outcome and then having another set of conversations about getting them to desire them more strongly. And so uh, when you're talking to outcomes, you're, you're talking my language. And I think uh, in my experience, a lot of those affiliated customer facing roles are a little bit less selective listening than the sales are when we ask them leading questions. Um, I think other folks know other things that we could do, but don't in our product. And I, I, I suspect that um, we'd take, I, I take your point that uh, a lot of those people are probably going to ask some very pointed uh, leading questions, but um, and if we can get them to stop doing that, I think we've, we've actually uh, done a lot more. But um, I think a lot of the roles that aren't in a sales roles have a lot of the, the blinders off of the kinds of questions that they are able to and feel at ease to ask. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, think, you know, I, I think the key is to become better at listening rather than talking. Yep. I think the uh, key is to become better at thinking and reflecting and asking rather than doing. 
And I think the, the other key is to make sure that we're collaborating, not just a, a lone wolf. And when we start putting all that together and blending it with something which you alluded to briefly, uh, you know, we've talked very heavily about what people want, but we've talked about it almost like a very heady intellectual level, like the features and functions, and this is the product and this is what I need. But the reality is we make most decisions based on emotion. And so what is the emotion we're tapping into and how do we get people to uh, want what it is that we're doing? Uh, but more importantly, how do we understand people's pain? So I do believe like one of the 25 lenses is the pain versus gain lens, which says, you know, a lot of times we're selling benefits, but in a lot of cases, people want an aspirin for their headache. And so if you can figure out what are the pains that they have in many situations that will help you get into their head and into their heart much faster than if you're just focused on, hey, here's a cool new tool that we've developed and uh, it's going to make your life better. It's like, no, I don't care about making my life better. I've got this other problem. Solve this problem. It's why Zoom's market cap now is larger than all the airlines put together by many fold. It's because they had a pain and Zoom was the aspirin for that pain. Yeah, the uh, behavioral economics teaches us that uh, people value getting rid of pain twice as much as they value the exact same gain. As a matter of fact, if you, if you give people the exact same coin flip, you know, like I'm gonna flip a coin, you owe me $50. I'm gonna flip a coin. And if I win, you know, if, if you guess right, then you no longer owe me $50. Um, people behave much differently than if the, the exact same coin is exact flipped the exact same way and it's me owing you. Um, in one case, 70% of the people will, will say, I'll take that bet. And in one case, only 30% of the people will take that bet. Because so when I, I think one of the things we, we need to do and teach salespeople is here, here's a cool thing you can do is a gain. But, you know, here's, here's a thing. And if you don't do it, your competitors will and you're going to be behind them. And it, it's exactly the same thing framed a different way. And um, so, but I agree generally that sometimes it is about the pain and not the gain. I completely agree that it is about the emotional attachment. Um, we, there's a lot of talk in sales about storytelling because that um, stimulates the amygdala parts of the brain that visualize and places yourself in a, in a narrative. And that's why pitching is, doesn't work as well as telling a story because you're trying to get a movie to play inside the customer's head. And you don't have to tell a story. You can ask them questions. Now tell me, walk through, imagine this case where you have this pain. Walk, tell me more about that pain. Where is it? What part of your head is it? And how bad does it hurt? What does it cause? Do you ever have to miss a day of work because of that? And what happens when you miss that day of work? If you can get somebody to understand that, um, ask questions to help them tell the story and, and play that movie in their head. That's when value starts forming in the customer's mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the other 25 lenses is the emotion lens. And that really is about how do we craft our questions with emotion? Yeah. So if we're problem solving and we're trying to say, how do we retain our customers? Uh, that's, you know, that's sort of a heady type of question. But if we were to ask questions like, how do we get our customers to smile when they think of our brand? Or how do we get customers to feel at home when they're inside of our stores, if we're a retail company or, or a hospitality organization? You know, those types of things are going to start generating 
not just different emotions from the perspective of the customer, but also the people trying to solve the problem. And the people who are solving the problem, when they have an emotional connection to the problem, they're going to think differently about it too. Yeah, I love the person I become when I walk through the doors of an REI store. I mm. become this adventurous, brave, um, outdoorsy, much more outdoorsy person than uh, the real me. And I love the fact that they are able to transform me that way. Um, hey, you've written another book, and I love the book. The, the title uh, has gotten me into some really great conversations with people, and the, the title is Best Practices Are Stupid. Uh, tell us about that a little bit, because I, I, you know, I love the thought behind that. Sure. So that, uh, the premise of that book is replication isn't innovation. So if you're copying what someone else is doing, that's just the fastest way to irrelevance. And uh, the, the, the three reasons why best practices are stupid is uh, the first one is sort of the, the obvious one, which is that if you're just replicating what somebody else is doing, you're playing a game of catch up. That's sort of the, the obvious one. The second one is uh, what worked for one organization an industry may not be relevant for yours. So context matters. But it's the third one that I that sort of jazzes me up when I think about it, which is just because somebody says something is a best practice doesn't mean it is. There's something called survivor bias. And then the flip side of that is called the undersampling of failure. And I would love to write an entire book just on the undersampling of failure. Because what ends up happening is anytime somebody says, this is a best practice, there were probably a thousand other companies that tried the same exact practice yet failed to achieve those results. So clearly, all they're doing is the survivors, the one rising to the top and all the failures are sinking to the bottom and nobody recognizes the fact that that practice didn't really help them. It was something else. It was causation. It was, wasn't causation. It was correlation or maybe coincidence. Yeah. I'm the grumpy old man. Every time somebody gives me that old saying that you know, leap in the net will appear. <laughs> I'm, I'm the grumpy old man that says, you know, you only hear from the people that actually found a net. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, no, I love that. Uh, I love the simplification that your, that somebody else's best, you know, somebody else's best, pra best practices are somebody else's strategy. Mm -hmm. And so the, the importance of context and the importance of replicability, the importance of uh, survivor bias, uh, I think those are all really important uh, as we try to create organizations that are more flexible, more responsive. And so it's nice to be able to catch up with people when you're in a serious deficit and best practices when they are genuinely best practices are, uh, they're easy because there's very little creativity involved. But as you said, they, they get you to where your competitor was when they wrote it down and published it. And you're already probably a step behind where the competitor was. Yeah. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying all best practices are stupid, but if that's your primary innovation strategy, that's stupid. Because there are times when best practices really are valuable. So, for example, uh, if you are a company that's actually doesn't really matter what industry you're in, but if you're trying to have the world's best payroll system and you're not ADP or someone like that, and you're, instead of using their best practices, or outsourcing it to them, you decide you're going to in innovate your own best practice around payroll, that is stupid. Uh, so best practices definitely have a place, 
But you need to understand that best practices are never the strategy for your differentiated capabilities. Anything which truly sets you apart, which is the place where you're supposed to innovate, I would say innovate where you differentiate. So if you're innovating where you differentiate, you can't use best practices for that, but they could be applicable for everything else. Steve, thanks, because I think you saved us a lot of angry uh, messages and emails. But with that, <laughs> Yes, they are fine. There's nothing wrong with best practices. Just don't use them all the time. Again, it comes back to what we said in the beginning. Think. That's right. Absolutely. Think, think better, think different. Steve, what a great conversation. We're already at the end. Is there anything else that people need to know about you uh, besides your contact information? No, I, I think we covered a lot of interesting territory in a relatively short amount of time. I love this. Yep. So tell people how they can get a hold of you. Uh, the best way is just go to steveshapiro.com. Uh, or if you're interested in the Invisible Solutions book, just go to invisiblesolutionsbook.com. And there's a bunch of free downloads, including the 25 lenses and videos and a bunch of other things that you can get for free. That's great. And um, I so appreciate that giveaway, uh, that offer for our listeners. Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. And thanks for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where value is own, something that only exists in your customer's mind, which means that your success in business sits all in your customer's head. Thanks and go get some value clarity. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.